Boom. Record has been Ooh, hit. I felt it. I felt Did it. You feel it? Deep in my butt. Where I feel most things. Ew. You know, it is weird. <laughs> What's after breakfast? What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas. It's weird brunch. I'm so, so tired of hearing about how unprecedented our times are. Stupid. They're really, if you think about it, quite precedented. They're they're thoroughly they're precedented. Just improperly planned for by the government. Yeah, they just haven't. They just hadn't happened yet in our coddled, easy ass lives. That's, That's all true. it is, and it's still pretty fucking easy. Oh. Truth. So, I should. I don't know. Maybe I should say this first story. They solved Roanoke. No. No. Yeah. How? It did. It's. It's really disappointing. You ready? I'm so ready. This is like America's okay. first mystery. What happened? Is this a, a joke? No, it's for okay. real. Like there's a scholarly paper out and they're like, oh, well, yeah, that pretty much explains it. So there's a uh, there's an island near Roanoke mm-hmm. um, that's that was populated by a tribe of Indians known as the Sokotoans. And okay. the colonists from Roanoke were hungry, so they went there. And they got married and had babies and basically joined the tribe. Oh. And by the time the British got back, they saw that, Sokotoa, but it was in their little racist pea brains, unfathomable that Europeans would join an Indian tribe for safety and comfort and enjoy it and stay there. But that's what happened. They knew it. They went exactly where they said the damn did. So what happened was the British went back and they said, what happened to Roanoke? And they're like, oh, they were lost. Lost Mm -hmm. like to the forces of savagery. And that everybody understood that's what happened. They were lost to going native basically. But as time went by, people thought it was literally lost and the name of the tribe was changed or like they started being called different things and that got forgotten. But anyway, that tribe had uh, several members who had blue eyes and fair hair. Mm. And there is plenty of archaeological evidence on that island of European tools and whatnot dating from pretty much that exact era. So yeah, they went right the fuck where they said they did across the bay to Sokotoa. Uh, and just uh, the white people couldn't handle it. So it wasn't a mystery. It was just a racism. Well, isn't yeah. it always? Yeah, I know. I told you it was a disappointing ending. That's why I wasn't going to do it as a story. I'm, it's kind of I'm, a downer. I mean, I still wanted to know. Yeah, I think I'd I'd rather yeah not starve to death like... Or I'd be like, well, let's go take our chance and see if they'll forgive us for like stealing their land and murdering the majority of their people. And they were like, you know what? We're still, we're still going to help you. Well, at that point, they were the first people there. So they hadn't done any of that bad shit yet. And in fact, you could say that Roanoke Colony figured out how to survive in America peacefully and if instead of calling them lost, the British had paid attention to that, there wouldn't have been so much tension. But again, racism. It's true. What a world. Maybe you could say the Roanoke colony was the only successful colony in the Americas. 
I think you're entirely correct. (laughs) They came here, they blended in, they learned the language, and they became part of the country. What's up with Brittany, Whitney? All right. Well, she had her little other conservatorship thing. I think it was Mm -hmm. earlier this week. But um, people are saying that the conservatorship is still holding, which is true, but only because I'm pretty sure that this meeting in court that happened was just a like preliminary thing. It's not the real hearing on if her conservatorship was going to be dissolved or turned over to someone else or something. I'm Whitney Lamont. Oh, I'm Karina Magyar. And da-da-da-da. Lisa Friedrich. (laughs) Yay, and this is Weird Brunch. Welcome to the podcast. I I just realized why my desk chair keeps slowly going down. And I feel like a genius. Well, there's a lever that I didn't understand. I had to push all the way down to lock it. So it's just been like day three. I'm like, why am I down here? Anyway, it's nice to feel like a genius every now and then. Proud of you. So so, So uh, let's introduce your story because it's part. It is part two. Also a comedy show I used to run. Um, So this is part two of Lois Duncan. Um, She was uh, a a YA author who wrote a shit ton of books that you've probably read or at least seen. I know what you did last summer. Um, And her daughter, where we left off, her daughter has uh, been killed and they're they're trying to you know get to the bottom of it and at this point you know lois is at a place where she's like cops are trash um her daughter kate um kate's sister robin had gone to a psychic and so robin was like hey mom why don't you check out this psychic um so lois you know she thinks that psychics are not cool and then finally she's like okay i'll go to the one that you went to robin and she found her trustworthy the medium trustworthy and she you know didn't the uh psychic wasn't advertising and she like did not accept payment from her she also was like hey lois um be chill with this anything you pull from this session uh especially with the cops because they're gonna be like you're nuts it also so while lois is in there she notices that uh the woman looks like someone she knows and she's like this is so weird but the person that she knows is uh a psychic detective that she had created in one of her own books Uh, that had been published years before. So Lois is like, this is so like your, I wrote you as a person. Weird. Yeah. Hmm. And so then Lois is like, well, who else is out there? Who's like not a piece of shit. As far as psychics go, she starts asking around and all of them are like, look, we only deal with cops. I'm sorry. We only work with law enforcement. So Lois is like, Oh really? And she goes to woman's day and she's like, I've got an idea for an article. And she goes and interviews a bunch of mediums. 
And at the end of every interview, she'd be like, oh, she'd mention her daughter and they'd be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Is there anything I can do? And then she'd say, I don't know. Is there? So she was getting, you know, working around that system and they all wanted uh, some of Kate's belongings so that they could tap into it. So she's like mailing out all of this stuff that's Kate's and they were responding with possible clues about the murder and also supposed messages from Kate that Lois was like, well, that sounds like her. There was one uh, of these clues that Lois was like, oh, really? It was a tip that about a desert castle that may have played some role in the murder. So Lois is like, all right. She grabs her camera, gets in her car, and she drives to the Sandia Mountains. She parks her car, walks up a rocky path, and like right when she gets through the path, she sees a mansion um, in the desert and it's behind a lock gate and she like starts to walk up. No one stops her. So she's just like rambling around. She's like, fuck it. She's wandering. She's taking pictures. She looks in the window and it's like, there's stuff in there, but it's just empty. Like no one's been in there. And then the pool looks like trash. So there's nothing about Kate, but this building is where it's, Whatever. They got halfway there. Her husband, Don, is like concerned because she's going a little too hard, but he knew he couldn't stop her. Another one of the mediums collaborated with a police sketch artist and Lois sent her um, Kate's sunglasses, lipstick and some other items. And the medium sent back a headshot of a possible suspect. Okay. So the man in this picture, Lois is like, well, fuck, he's also familiar because he looks identical to another character that Lois had created. He's a hitman named Mike Vamp in a book called Don't Look Behind You. And in the book, Vamp drives a Camaro where he hunts the main female character. That main female character had been modeled on Kate, but the book hadn't been published yet. So this was before Kate's death. She had already been like, you know, oh, my daughter's getting all these letters from these men. At, she's 16, like a little bit, a little bit smart, a little bit wild. While all of the, the Lois is talking to all the mediums, the Albuquerque Police Department is, you know, they're doing their own investigation still. And they had charged two men with Kate's murder. The cops are saying when the man fired the gun that killed her, he was sitting in the passenger seat of a Camaro. And his name was Miguel Garcia, but he went by Mike. And in an interview, one of his friends offered up his nickname, Vamp. What? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Are all these cops just obsessed with her and they're building this around one of her novels? No. They, <laughs> they are not happy with Lois. The other man that was charged uh, of the two was uh, Juvenal Juve Escobedo. And he and Mike Vamp, I will be calling him Miguel Garcia from here on out, but they grew up together. They were 18 and 21, respectively. That was Garcia and Escobedo. In the telling, uh, uh, what Detective Gallego says is that they were, it was just a random act of violence. So, here's his hypothetical or like, you know what he thinks. Um, they had been out for a ride in Escobedo's Camaro. Juve Escobedo dared M- Michael Garcia to shoot at the female driver. 
Michael Garcia then pointed a revolver at the blonde female driver through his passenger window and fired several shots. And this was, again, in 1989. So this is right around the time that we're starting to use the term drive-by shooting. That's what they're calling this. And, you know, that you just heard drive-by shooting a lot at this time. So when Escobedo and Garcia appear in court, and it's also televised, that's also kind of a new thing in 89, um, they're just little guys. They're just little. Everyone's expecting them to be big, and they're just little. Lois afterwards was kind of like, I mean, this is awesome. I'm really hopeful. I'm. She's just like shocked at all of it because it, it kind of happened quickly. So as the case is kind of going through, it's immediately like, what the fuck? Because um, the friend who was like, yeah, he goes by vamp. He also was like, oh, I was in the backseat of that Camaro and this is the revolver and I saw Garcia grab it. And then it turns out the guy couldn't have been in the backseat because he was in fucking jail. And then when the cops found the revolver that he was talking about, it had it was missing a bushing and in a spring it was completely inoperable and it had been that way for months. So less than two weeks later, the charges are dropped. The police then took a different approach. They focus on neighbors who claim to have heard Garcia talking about the crime, as well as another man who um, told a cop and jail guards that he too witnessed the murder from the Camaro's back seat. He backed off of that claim uh, and then said that the confession was coerced. He made the statement and then he said that um, the detective like turned off the tape recorder and said, if you don't want to cooperate, then I will send you to a prison and set you up on the death penalty. It's very threatening. Yeah. It's just like how many people we got in the backseat, y'all? The grand jury didn't believe it. And a month after the charges were dismissed, Escobedo and Garcia were indicted for first degree murder. Garcia had remained in jail, but Escobedo, he was out and he was nowhere to be found. So, you know, Lois is hearing like he's in Albuquerque, he's in Mexico, he's all over the place. And the police are like, we're, we're looking nothing. And then in the spring of 91, nearly two years after her murder, Kate's murder, the um, Lois and her husband are summoned by the district attorney, Robert Schwartz. Uh, he said that the charges were being dismissed. He still believed that Kate was a victim of a random drive-by and that Garcia and Escobedo were guilty, but some of the witnesses had started waffling. And he, Schwartz was like, they've been intimidated. You know, it's, it's all of this is pretty much unusable. Uh, he also said that another problem was that the defense attorneys had gotten onto this like Vietnamese connection that we talked about last week and it had a better motive than their case. But then it's like, well, if it's better then why wasn't that looked at and like, where the fuck is Juve? Like, how is he missing? You know, did they all have something to do? Was the coercion true? Like, Lois is just like, what the fuck? And the cops in 1980s Albuquerque were just as shady as the city. The, uh, I just like saying APD, <laughs> Austin, but okay. it's Albuquerque. Their intelligence unit began, like, tracking attorneys or reporters who were, like, talking shit or suing the department. And then the ACLU filed a lawsuit against Albuquerque police department. And then they, or they didn't file a lawsuit. They, um, no, they did. 
the lawsuit was seeking disclosure of the files that they had been keeping. And uh, the police department was like, oh, you want these? And then burned them. There's some other stuff about some other police officers and like the mayor. Everybody was just like, just, it was like Sopranos. So Lois writes a nonfiction account called Who Killed My Daughter? Uh, It's published in 92. And she's like, you know, talking about the murder, talking about the events that followed and like the struggle of of all of this. Uh, She was very critical in how the law enforcement handled it. And then when a reporter was like, hey, deputy, deputy chief of investigations, what do you think about this? The deputy chief was like, I don't read fiction. That's such a 92 fucking burn. So I just hate him. Yeah. No, they're all like cops are bad. Mm-hmm. On So then she's like going around and she's, uh, you know, going to all of the like, you know, doing all the media, going on every TV show she can. And it's, you know, part for her book. And she's also able to speak about her daughter and how fucking pissed off she is. So at some point, she is um, appearing alongside the district attorney, Robert Schwartz, who called them in before to be like, sorry, these guys are gone. And the idea was on Larry King Live. And the idea was like, these two guys are going to go head to head. And so she was like, okay, um, I'm going up against Robert Schwartz, uh, who had a side gig as a stand-up comedian. Oh, boy. So she's like, I don't do that shit. So she's like, here's my, okay, here's my debate strategy. It's very simple. I knew more about the case than he did. And then right before she goes on air, uh, her husband calls about a psychic tip. And he says, Kate's killers might turn on each other. Don't alienate the police. So then Lois is like, fuck. And it's just non-confrontational. And it's just like, mm-hmm. And so that segment. Boo! I know. That makes me mad. It's like cringy. <sighs> yeah. It's a seven-minute segment on Larry King. And she's like prepared. And then, you know, obviously it's just like a canned statement. And then afterwards, Schwartz asked her for an autograph. <laughs> oh. Everyone is trash. Yeah, what a dick. So then a couple years later, she goes on Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Wow. (laughs) Because the paperback, I know, I know. When was the last time? So the paperback of of Who Killed My Daughter came out at that time. Um, So she's on SJR and this (laughs) Pat Caristo, she's a private investigator. She is watching and she picks up the phone. And so Carista, she had done like law enforcement all her life. She's in a private investigations uh, business in Albuquerque and a lawyer who was like, oh, this drive-by shooting thing's really taken off. I should figure out how I'm going to find out more information about all these drive-by shootings in this crime realm. He hires her and she's like, okay. So she, she knows a lot about this. And the lawyer's like, hey, while you're looking into these, let's look at this Kate thing. So she's digging in and this is kind of what she's discovered. So at 11 PM, the night she was, Kate was killed. uh, There's a plain clothes detective and he's almost done for the night. And he sees Kate's car 
he drove right by and didn't really see her body or anything. And so he thinks it's an accident. So he calls it in. Nothing had been reported. And so he's like, he turns around and then he sees that, you know, there's a, a body in there. Um, so already there's stuff that, you know, just that turn around, um, like the detective was like, I saw two cars. And when I turned around, there was only one. So like you, you just missed the fucking, you just missed the fucking. The killers. Yeah. A man who lived around the corner was like, yo, I saw a Volkswagen bug driving away from the scene. The detective didn't see this. So it's hard to, you know, just be like, oh, okay. Instead, the detective finds a man standing next to Kate's car. He just hmm. happened to be passing by. And that man is Paul Apodaca. And at the time, he was in his early 20s, already has an alarming criminal history. Um, throughout the 80s, he's charged with committing multiple violent acts, uh, attacks against women. I uh, deleted all of them because they are aggressive. And, but his car was a Volkswagen bug. So a few years after that, there's a headline in the Albuquerque Journal that is man rapes stepsister to get into prison. Uh, <laughs> I don't like I, that. I hate to put it this way, but that sounds like a man who was tried for a twofer. Well, it's far more depressing. Oh, so God. his Younger brother had been convicted of murder, so he wants to go in and protect him, right? Um, as you do. And then, so he's sentenced to nine to 20 years in prison for that. So he wins. Win-win. Mm-hmm. So at the scene of Kate's murder, Apodaca's contact information is taken, and then he leaves. So they didn't run his information before he fucking took off. Officers would have seen that just a few months before he and his uncle had been just shooting uh, 22 pistols, like pretty close to fucking University Boulevard, which uh, probably downtown ish. And they were like, there's like a police, he's shooting guns like in the middle, whatever. So then in October of 95, Apodaca uh, meets with Caristo and he tells her that on the night on whenever Kate died, he'd been on the way to a friend's house and he saw her car on the side of the road. So he pulled over. The uh, detective arrived moments later and the men approached the car together and Caristo asked, who was with you? And Apodaca said, who said anyone was with me? Which is like a very important question because a Volkswagen had been seen leaving the area and Apodaca was like, well, my Volkswagen's orange. And that guy said his was gray. So mm. so she's like, okay, fine. But it's still, I'm still going to dig into it. Because if someone drove it away, then that person was behind the wheel and it wasn't you because you were fucking giving your information. So she's digging into um, more of the investigation. And she's just... You know, it's one of those things where it's like a, a beautiful mind and all of the things are just flying in your face as you look through the window. Um, <laughs> but real. She, sees, <laughs> she uh, notices that no bullets or shells were ever recovered from the crime scene. Only fragments were found in Caitlin's body. So, like, did someone clean them up? What the fuck? The forensic pathologist who examined Kate suggested that the two bullets that killed her were fired 
from a small caliber pistol. But when Caristo examined the photos of Kate's car, it looks like it had to come from at least a 38. So like it's just half fucking cocked. And then she went to interview the first two cops that arrived at the scene and the plainclothes detective it was a plain clo- the plainclothes guy and then a uniformed officer. And the detective is like, yeah, the officer got Apodaca's information. And then the officer is like, no, the detective did. And then Apodaca is like, there wasn't a uniformed officer there. So, like, th- what the fuck? What the fuck? So, Carista puts this, like, 75-page document analysis together and gives it to Albuquerque Police Department, and she just never hears back. Lois starts going on, you know, supernatural-oriented TV shows to talk about her psychic experiences, trying to kind of get it out there as much as possible. She never stopped documenting Kate's murder, even though it took a lot longer than anticipated. Um, Actually, I think it was like maybe 10, a little less than 10 years ago, she released um, a follow-up to who killed my daughter called one to the wolves lois at this point it's like kate's killing was planned like the more she's digging into this she's like this was planned um and she thinks that the errors were actually in uh by design and she said i don't see how anybody with a brain in their head could think this was random i love how sassy she is <laughs> so The who, what, where, and why of this conspiracy are fucking insane. They involve a garage that once operated as a chop shop, heroin discovered at the import store where Kate worked, and an evolving list of just more characters, more motives. And Lois is like, there's just a fucking billion reasons that she could have been killed. Caristo uh, is also certain that she was targeted. Gallagher believes the case was destroyed by uh, incompetence and bad luck. So like, you know, the detective who questioned a man that should have been questioned or didn't question a man that should have been questioned. The Albuquerque police department says that it's only bungled by Lois's interactions with it. Um, They said, yeah, they would say that. Mm -hmm. I was watching murder. She wrote before this and, I feel like, you know, that's validation of what she's been doing. She's writing books. She's solving murders. Yeah. The cops just need to give her a shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a few little, like, tying it together, end of a end of a 1970s movie where everybody finds out what everybody does after college. <laughs> after leaving Albuquerque, uh, Yun Nguyen, eventually he's in Northern California. The um, So, again, this is from Tim Stella and uh, he went to try to get a hold of him. No response. And then uh, in 2012, Paul Apodaca had been released from prison for the rape conviction. Uh, He returned shortly after with a 12 year sentence after splitting open his girlfriend's forehead and stealing her car. Jesus Christ. That guy. Was he a stand up comic too? I mean, probably, but like, you know, not as not as big as old Schwartz over there. So then Tim Stella he goes and knocks on a, a door in Martina's town, where um, Escobedo and Garcia were from, and he heard that a relative of Escobedo's might live there. So yes, it's his older brother, 
And he was like, he's in the back room, you know, whatever. Uh, Tim Stella was like, okay, here's my number. If he wants to contact, like he's been shut down so many times. He's like, whatever. And then a half hour later, Juve calls him. And uh, like, I don't know, three hours later, they're all, he, um, Juve and his daughter, Michaela, uh, are meet Tim in his airport hotel. And Juve has never discussed this case with a reporter before. Uh, and so he was speaking very slowly and deliberately. Like he was, you know, even though it was a short amount of time, he was like clearly had prepared for that. Juve was like, look, before the winter of 90, my life was cool. I had only had like one DWI and that was the only thing at all. Um, he said that he knew Miguel Garcia and the two other guys that were both in the backseat and not in the backseat for a couple of years. And then, okay. So when Escobedo first found out about Kate's murder, he says that he was at his sister's apartment and they were like, Oh shit, that location's really close to my, um, my brother. And so he, um, I mean, that's why they paid attention. Then as he's getting arrested at his girlfriend's apartment six months later, he's like, I'm the wrong fucking guy, dude. Like, this isn't right. And then he's seen some of the guys since then. Um, and, you know, the two that ratted him or whatever, the two backseat, not backseat guys, he's like, cool. They were like, look, we, you know, we were forced. And he's like, cool. We, we're not going to be friends anymore, though. Like, let's just call it peace because fuck that. And then he saw Garcia and he was like, he never told me if he did it or not. Uh, Jesus. And then um, let's see. Oh, when the charges were reinstated, Escobedo was like, no, I didn't fucking leave. I just stayed in Albuquerque. I was here the whole goddamn time. So like bullshit, you're looking cops. So also Escobedo's like, you know, he's like not a week goes by that he doesn't think about Lois. Um, and he actually, his 20 year old son, Andrew died in a construction accident. Um, and so he's like, you know, the grief of a parent losing a child, like that's super fucked up. And, you know, I, I really feel for her. Lois is like, what? Like, okay, thanks. Juve. Um, Sure. And she was like, I mean, they were arrested really fast, but like maybe they were involved. Like he's just chilling. But she and Escobedo are both like, you know, they're both at this point, And this is, you know, I guess uh, five years ago, six years ago, they're both like, you know, we've come to figure out or believe that, you know, this is just not going to happen. And the police department doesn't want this case solved. So she never gave up. Um, on June 15th, 2016, Lois Duncan died suddenly at the age of 82. And it's undisclosed causes. She had suffered a series of strokes in the years prior. So I don't, I feel like they would have said natural causes. So undisclosed kind of weirds me out. I don't, I've never heard of. It's probably just. She's mysterious. It's just a privacy thing, I'm sure. She died of being 82. Sure. Yeah. In this economy? <laughs> Just months before she passed, Warner Brothers had been in touch with her to talk about a documentary on the case. I bet they still do one. Nah. I would love I would love it. 
with all of her going on like Sally Jesse and the daytime TV show stuff, you know, there's going to be a bunch of great footage and I bet they still do it. I bet it's uh, Netflix now. They're the ones who pay for all the documentaries. Or HBO. Yeah. HBO is putting out the phone. Oh, well, Warner Brothers is HBO. That makes sense. Now I get it. I'm done. Oh. Was that it? That's it. Nothing's been solved. It's just, it was just the craziest fucking tangled mess I've ever seen. I had to share it. I do apologize for taking up the length of two <laughs> full podcasts with these two stories. No, Next time I'll do a four-parter. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> I, I do like that we do have a track record now that if we do something like this, there will be a documentary on it within six to nine months. So you probably created the Expect documentary it. by doing the story. So That would be my... Third witchcraft today. <laughs> Ooh. Wow. You only need one more. What are the other two? To complete the circle. Uh, one of them was I asked my friend if these other two people that I barely know, I was like, oh my God, did they break up? Because they were definitely engaged. And then he found out today. He's like, I asked him that yesterday. And today he's like, by the way, I found out. I was like, oh man, I'm a witch. <laughs> and I don't remember the other one, but I just know it happened. Undisclosed witchcraft. Mysterious. It's true. Yes. Yeah. All right. So there's a place in England called the West Kennet Long Barrow. And it was, it's it's in Wiltshire, which is like right on the border with Wales, straight west of London. So out there in that sheep country. And a long barrow is basically... A burial tomb from Neolithic era. So it's part of the Stonehenge UNESCO World Heritage Site because it's made of giant stones, just like Stonehenge. But instead of making shapes, they make essentially a tunnel. So there's these giant pieces of rock that come from a totally different part of England lined up and then giant pieces of rock on top like a like a roof. And it's been there for 5,000 years, uh, a good 500 years longer than the pyramids of Egypt, the oldest pyramids of Egypt, not even the the good ones. Was Neolithic right before like when humans became human? Yes. So I'm going to get into that. That's actually a good question. So finally, early Neolithic period Mm -hmm. is right at the tail end of Neanderthals hanging around. So Neanderthals are roughly ended around five to 4,000 BC. And this is just right after that in the 3,600 to 3,500 BC. Neanderthals had essentially just vanished, at least in terms of what we can tell from the fossil record. And we will talk about why that means something. What matters about this long barrow is that they um, kind of discovered it, rediscovered it in the 17th century Um, and started digging in it and found a tremendous number of bodies, just lots. Usually these things are more like the pyramids where it's, you know, one or two families. This one had, at that point, 47 surviving remains. And it wasn't just the papas and mamas. There was a lot of babies, more babies than are in any of the other long barrows. So it's a little bit creepy. And even more creepy is that the bones aren't together. 
like they are when they're buried and then left there. They're sort of sorted by type, arm bones, head bones, leg bones. And there's evidence with etching and other uh, signs of human tampering that these bones were taken out of the barrow from time to time, used in some sort of a ritual, and then put back. So from what they can tell, uh, it was heavily used from 3670 to 3635 BCE. So like 35 years of just throwing all sorts of human bones in there. And then for about 100 years, nothing. Nobody touched it. And then they started using it again for a very long time, but only for babies and animals. Specifically, I don't like that. Specifically goats. Huh. Some sort of weird burial ritual, some sort of uh, taking the bones in and out, some sort of prayers involved. What the hell's going on? There's no official answer, but I thought this was creepy. So here's what I've dug up. Dig, dig, dig. <laughs> it's uh, oh, sorry, 46 people. Sorry, I got that number wrong. In terms of like popular culture, the only thing that's said to be haunted about it or the only like kind of folklore about it is that people believe they've seen a white spectral figure accompanied by a white hound with red ears at sunrise yes. on Midsummer's Day near the Fuck Long yes. Barrow, right? So that's yes. the kind yes. of ghosty so right. thing going on right love a ghost dog I'm a, man i'm a love a ghost dog i'm here let's go so that's the folktale is that if you go there on midsummer's day you can see this kind of white spectral figure and the white ghost or white dog with the red t- ears but in terms of what's actually going on there in um, no. with um kind of supernatural stuff is that in the 1980s an historian went in to sort of like look for more clues as to what was going on there. And they found in one of the side chambers, some very fresh, very recently used candles and wax drippings Um. and smoke on the ceilings and black ash drawings of strange occult symbols with diagonals and swoops and dots And this particular historian was like, these look like the seals that are in the Lemegeton that Solomon the king used to seal the devil into 72 different chambers, according to like Aleister Crowley type Satanism. Question. Yes. Did satanic panic hit fucking the everywhere? Yes. Got it. Yes. Cool. England had it just as bad as America, and they also had it just as badly, specifically in 1985. Like, that's the year of, not the year of, like, it's that five-year period, the early 80s, 81 to 86, right? So you got to take it with a grain of salt. However, he did take photographs, and yeah, this is some Satanist shit. So some Satanists were using the long barrow in the 80s. To summon whom he can't tell because the symbol is not found in the Book of Solomon, the king. Uh, it's because they just made that shit up. It's like a hybrid. And I'm like, ooh, okay. So here's where I started digging. We got the white ghost with the dog with the red ears, and we got this weird symbol, right? So, like I said, this is right on the border with Wales. In Welsh mythology, 
there is a white hound with red ears that's associated with death. The Kun Anan, or the hounds of Anan, follow along behind Eron, the king of the underworld, who is usually presented as a completely white figure, white skin, white teeth, white eyes, white robes, everything like that. So Eron and the Kun Anan, when you hear the barking of dogs and you see a white figure, it's supposed to mean that death is coming near and that they are coming to take you to the underworld. That's their underworld myth in Wales. Um, Also in Wales, if you hear geese honking in the distance, uh, that was believed to be the barking of these dogs. So that's cute. Eron is in a lot of mythology. It's in the foundational books of the Welsh. Uh, it's, he shows up in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. He also shows up most prominently, you know, in terms of our pop culture in the books of Lloyd Alexander called the Chronicles of Pridian, the second of which is called The Black Cauldron, which Disney made into a movie in... 1985 and in it they made Aron an evil death lord who's all black and has horns and is much more aligned with Christian underworld than Welsh underworld so in the Welsh underworld you're sounding like a real me right now (laughs) I know this is fun huh (laughs) Uh, so in the in the Welsh underworld it's a good place it's kind of like Valhalla yeah, it's under the ground, but like when you die, that's just where you go and it's cool and uh, everybody lives happily and Iran loves his wife and uh, they're the good people. This is the place you want to end up. It got mingled up in post-Christian Britain with the concept of Orcus, which is kind of that Roman, Greek, Latin version of hell that got into the Bible and that we still deal with today. Orcus, of course, being the root of the word ogre and orc. And where we get the concept of a goat-like horned devil, like an evil black devil, like Aron was portrayed in Disney's movie. There's an idea that these Satanists in Britain are confused and are trying to summon Aron, but the one they're trying to summon is most likely from the movie that came out that year and that is much more associated with Satan than the actual Aron who probably populates or spiritualizes or who's this long barrel was built to pray to, right? Let's talk about Celtic mythology real fast. Woo! We've done a little bit of Celtic mythology in the past, right? Yep. So the most pure Celtic mythology that's still kind of ongoing on the planet that hasn't been polluted by British nonsense and pagan uh, uh, Druidism and all the stuff that came post-Christianity, the like real pre-Christian Celtic stuff, for that you got to go to Basque country in Spain. (gasps) Basque are Celtic and they still speak Celtic and uh, their mythology has no Christianity in it. It is like straight up. All right. Is that why there is there a genocide there? No genocide. They just want to break off from Spain because they're like, fuck you guys. We're Celts. Um, we're not Spanish. Okay. Yeah. That's wild that they didn't get like assimilated in any way to Christianity. That's crazy. Well, they live in those mountains between France and Spain. Right. And they're kind of like, they're, they're like the hillbillies they're- of... Western right. Europe, right? Eh, we'll skip that part. <laughs> Just go around. So in 
Basque country, they also have all these otolithic like barrows and all these big like kind of Stonehenge type giant stones that got moved there. Who knows how 4,000, 5,000 years ago. They believe that these were all done by Basajuan. Basajuan, sorry, Basajuan. Basajuan is a giant nine foot tall hairy dude. CJ. Yeah. (laughs) Who builds all of these, you know, otoliths, all of these barrows and all these weird lithic like stone structures. And per tradition teaches people about tending to sheep, goats, and agriculture. Recently, anthropologists have realized that the Basajan, the myth of the Basajan, is most likely based on Celtic encounters with Neanderthals because they've started to realize that in Europe, Neanderthals were farmers and Homo sapiens were hunters, and that Homo sapiens learned farming from Neanderthals. What? Yes. I fucking. That's. Wild. Yes. I fucking can't right now. That's so blowing my mind. Basajan is probably a cultural memory of the Neanderthals who taught the early humans of the region how to farm and do, you know, animal husbandry and like do agriculture essentially. And wow. the other thing that Neanderthals taught Homo sapiens were their crazy fucking ass burial rituals, which Here's a list of Neanderthal <laughs> and Neo, early Neolithic burial rituals. Bryn Kelly Dudu uh, in Ireland, the Mound of the Black Grove, uh, was built in 3000 BC. It's a circle of standing stones with cremated human remains. Under each, a pit was dug, and in the surrounding ditch, a single human ear bone was buried there and covered with a slab of rock. The fucking ear bone looked like... In Verulamium in the 2nd and 3rd century BC, a child's skull was carefully defleshed using a small sharp knife and then displayed on a post outside of a shrine for some time before being buried in a shaft upright with a whetstone and the corpse of a puppy. Ah. In Penmanor, that goes millennia beyond Druids, an urn containing the remains of a cremated child was found right in the middle of a circle and another near the edge along with a horse skull. In the 4th century BCE, in Winchester, an old woman's body was decapitated, her head placed near her knees, and the grave contained the bones of two dogs, one of which had its limbs severed and its spinal column bent into a circle and tied that way. Same century in Britain, a woman was buried with her arms and legs tied before death, and she wore a lead-like constricting neck thing in reverse, made out of and it's lead, which is unusual. It's usually gold, silver, or bronze. Lead is usually what you do to consign a woman to outer darkness. And then, of course, there's the West Kennet Chambered Long Barrow, where the bones were taken in and out and reburied with mostly goats. There's also things about castration tools. Um, it goes on and on. So all of these... I don't want to live there. All of these burial Not rituals enough. are Neanderthals teaching them along with agriculture to Homo sapiens. So the Basajon myth mutates a little bit, this giant hairy man, and mutates in British Celtic mythology into the wild man. And the earliest story of the wild man 
that we know of is Merdin Wilt. Merdin Wilt, of course, is Merlin, the wizard. Merlin. Oh, oh damn it. Yeah. <laughs> so before he got all romanticized and turned into like a fair lords and ladies thing, Merlin, the wizard, Merdin Wilt, the legend has him going insane after he witnesses the horrors of battle and goes into the woods. And here is a translation of that early myth. A strange madness came upon him. He crept away and fled to the woods, unwilling that any should see his going. Into the forest he went, glad to lie hidden behind the ash trees. He watched the wild creatures grazing on the pasture. Sometimes he would follow them, and sometimes he would pass them. He made use of the roots of plants and grasses and fruits of trees and blackberries in the thicket. He became master of all animals. He became man of the woods. And a whole summer he stayed hidden, discovered by none, forgetful of himself and his own, lurking like a wild thing, living inside the barrows, licking their walls. Okay. So Merlin was probably a Neanderthal who lived in the barrows and did agriculture and did something weird with the stones that they try to capture in this, right? I'm sorry. Yeah. What's a what's a barrows? Uh, the barrows, like the long barrow, like these tunnels that they built for death. Okay, got like it, got it, got barrows, it. Right? Okay. So yeah. when we put it all together now, we've got Satanists trying to summon Aaron. They're doing it wrong because they've got it confused with the Christian God but they still know that there's something you can do on Midsummer's Day to summon this guy. And this guy, Aaron, is said to be the teacher of wisdom and knowledge and agricultural things. So they've got it kind of confused, or do they? Because you see, the West Kennet Long Barrow is in a long straight line, and it looks a lot like a cock, and it's pointing northwest. It's got like two balls at the bottom. It's got a shaft and it's pointing to the northwest. And this itched at me because I was like, wait a minute, satanic shit, dicks pointing to the northwest. I just saw hereditary. What the fuck? I looked it up. I found that symbol that they found at the Satanists. I matched it up to another symbol. It's not perfect, but it's pretty goddamn close to Paimon, one of the gods of hell who teaches all arts, philosophies, sciences, and secret things, and gives good familiars and binds men to the will of the earth. He's depicted as a man with an effeminate face, but a long beard, often often riding a goat. And anybody who must uh, summon him with a shrine must do it by facing Northwest. Yeah. I'm so going there. It's probably the West Kennet Long Barrow. There's a good. Ch- oh, wait. I left out the most important part. Oh, my God. So, this West Kennet Long Barrow, which is the most intact Long Barrow in England and still obviously in use by occultists to this day, and it's free. You know, you can just go there and walk in. There's no admission charge or anything like that. You can just wander on in there anytime you want. The chambers are built in such a way that they emit infrasound if you sing at a certain pitch. Infrasound is sound lower than the human ear can hear, but you only detect it as a series of low pulses with a B 
bare vibration underneath it. And if you sing at a certain pitch, the entire chamber starts to resonate so strongly they can feel the infrasound around you. And apparently people have done it say it's the fucking creepiest thing you've ever felt in your life. Oh my God, that sounds horrifying. I hate it. Yeah. So my my question is, if, if, if Neanderthals taught Homo sapiens agriculture, but they believe that in order to get agriculture, they had to do all these wacky burial rituals, who taught agriculture to the Neanderthals? I mean, couldn't they just... Whatever came before them. Satan? Snakes? Uh, (laughs) I was going to be like alien. Yeah, I mean like something. Something from another world, an underworld. Well, you don't think that maybe one day they just dropped a seed? And they were like, whoa. And then they peed on it and then it grew. That is how plants grow. (laughs) So yeah, that's the end of mine. Just Satan. (laughs) And that's the end of that story. I, yeah, that's, that place sounds so scary and I never, ever, ever want to go there. Like, I'm pretty sure I'd get possessed and the idea of being in a very long ancient tunnel with infrasound waving around me and I can't actually hear it, but I can feel it. It sounds like hell itself. So no, thank you. Netflix released a thing, a show called, I think, Cursed or Cursed, uh, maybe. Um, but it's very like Merlin-y, but it's got um, a female protagonist. It's very, I liked it for what it is. But Merlin. It's teen drama for sure. Yes. And I, I fucking eat that shit up. And you're putting a, like a goddamn dragon world in there. I mean, there's no dragons, but yeah, Merlin's in that. And he is a little bit more like what you just described, which I thought was Cool. Are back into being into like the dirt, the like nature, dirty gremliny Merlin. And I yeah, like the it. creepy one. Yeah, yeah. the doctor is yeah. the only one to really deal with. Yeah, deal with. Well, what? dealing with those clean Merlins. Yeah, <laughs> I don't need no clean Merls. I am gonna talk about. Possibly one of the world's biggest douchebags. I'm very excited. And I hope you are too. Um, Always. His name is Mark Twitchell. Ew, I already hate it. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Terrible name. Um, Mark Andrew Twitchell. He's born in on July 4th, 1979 in Edmonton, Canada. What's up, Canada? So Mark's dream in life is to like be involved in movies and make movies and he's like all about this shit so what a unique dream i know right so in 2007 he makes a full-length fan fan film prequel to star wars a new hope called star wars secrets of the rebellion and it's a full-length fucking film that is just fan fiction that he made a movie out of, which is wild to me. So that's his first kind of foray into this. And he's also like real, real kind of into murdery stuff and like the idea of killing people. Uh, in September of 2008, he shoots a horror film called House of Cards 
in a garage he rented in Edmonton. And it's the story of a guy who's lured from a dating website into a garage where there's a fucking killer and yada, yada, yada. He gets killed. Let's get down to the nitty fucking gritty. Twitchell is like, you know what? I am obsessed. My favorite new show is Dexter. I love it so much. It's a guy who, you know, kills bad guys and like goes into their house. If any of y'all have seen Dexter, you know what I mean. But what Dexter does is he stalks like rapists and other really bad guys and murders them in their own like houses or wherever they are. He covers, he like meticulously plans ahead, covers the entire room in plastic and then like fucking kills them. And he works for like the police department, of course. Anyways, so he's like a good bad guy. And Twitchell is like, I'm fucking into this. And this is like what I want to be when I grow up. He uh, sounds like a guy who quoted Anchorman for 10 years. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, everyone's <laughs> into this? Me too. Yeah. If you looked him up, you he, that's exactly what it looks like. In October of 2008, he's like, you know what? I'm going to fucking do this. I'm going to be Dexter and I'm going to lure somebody to my garage that I have set up with a bunch of plastic on the walls and shit like that, like Dexter does. And I'm going to fucking kill somebody. But turns out it's, you know, like not easy to do and not easy, I guess, to just randomly figure out who bad guys are. I don't even know if he wanted to do that in the first place. But what he decides is that, he is going to go on to Plenty of Fish, which is a dating website, make his little Twitchell bio, but he's going to pose as a woman and he's going to eventually try and set up dates with these dudes on Plenty of Fish, get them to come over, and then he's going to kill them. And mind you, these are just regular fucking dudes. They're not like thinking they're hooking up with a minor or something. They're guys who are just genuinely trying to get dates on a dating website. So October 10th, 2008, Twitchell invites a guy named Johnny Altinger, Altinger, sorry, uh, over to his house. Altinger, Altinger thinks he's going to meet this woman named Jan. And how it, many ends? I don't know. Okay. It's not in here. I'm, in- I'm going to guess too, because double engines or nothing but trouble. You know, Altinger goes, he tells his friends like first, what's up guys? I'm going to this girl's house and it's probably, it's like for the weekend. She's like, I want to meet you and get to know you and come to my house for the weekend. So homeboy is all excited. He tells all his friends and before he goes, he's like, Hey, if anything happens to me, ha ha, here is the address of the place that I'm going. Way to fucking go, Johnny. That's yeah. a big idea. Everyone should do that. And he always followed that rule. So he goes and he walks up to this fucking garage 
where she was like, this is where I want to meet you. And um, that's where bum, bum, bum Twitchell is. And Twitchell is like, perfect. I'm going to kill this guy. So yeah. So he like hits him over the head and then like murders Johnny. And it's a bummer, but luckily he told his friends where he was going and his friends, a few days after he's been gone, one of them gets this email from Johnny. It says, Hey there, I've met an extraordinary woman named Jen one in, sorry, Um, who has offered to take me on a nice long tropical vacation. We'll be staying in a bar or we'll be staying in her winter house in Costa Rica, phone number to follow soon. I won't be back in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my email periodically. See you around the holidays, Johnny. And his friends are like, that's the craziest email I've ever fucking seen. And this is impossible. Yeah. It sounds like somebody's grandmother just figured out an email. Yeah. So, They're like, no fucking way. They go over to Johnny's house. They break in and they find like dirty dishes. Like his passport is there. Like nothing is clean. Johnny clearly had maybe packed a bag and gone away for the weekend. And that's all he thought he was doing. So the friends are like, this is fucked up. Clearly he would need his passport to go on a vacation for the next two months with a random woman to Costa Rica. (laughs) Right? Yeah. They go to the cops. In the meantime, his work also gets an email. It says, greetings. While I've certainly enjoyed my time at Argus, I have another offer that is too good to pass up. So this is my notice. I will no longer be continuing my employment with your organization. Thank you. Blah, blah, blah. John Atlinger. And or Altinger, and that's the work is like. Also, this is real fucking weird. So the police are told are notified, and they are like, all day, de- all hands on deck. Like this shit is n- definitely not just a disappearance. We need to figure out what's going on. And his friends are like, oh hey, look at this. Uh, actually, we have the address of where he went, and they're like perfect. That's where we're going to start out. And they do. And they go and they find who other than Mark Twitchell at his house where his like <sighs> wife and kid live because he's fucking married also apparently. Um, They go to Mark Twitchell's house and they're like, hey, what's up, man? Like, do you mind coming with us? Because we need to talk to you. He goes, he's interviewed a first time and they're like, who is Jan? Who is, does this name ring a bell? Blah, blah, blah. Like laying some stuff out there. And he's like, I've never heard of that in my life. And I don't know what you're talking about. Of course, that's his first interview. Later on that day, they send him into a second fucking interview. And this guy isn't taking his shit. In his second time being interviewed by the police, he is saying, Oh, I forgot. I do actually think I know this Johnny Altinger guy. I remember running into him in front of my house randomly. He was there. I don't know why. Um, 
we talked for a second as strangers and then he sold me his car for forty dollars and uh the, the cops are like oh really bro that's that's what you're gonna say this is what you're choosing to say okay great good job he <laughs> obviously didn't do that uh the police are like we don't believe your bullshit they arrest him on halloween 2008 he also and that's the day he's charged with first degree murder of johnny altinger that's pretty fucking fast actually yeah, yeah I mean, this stuff happened at the beginning of october and bam arrested october 31st canada uh, yeah thank you canada um so the key piece of evidence that's presented by the crown at Twitchell, because we're in Canada, don't forget, the Twitchell's first degree murder trial was a document titled SK Confessions, as in serial killer confessions. And they had pulled it from Twitchell's laptop, even though he had tried to delete it at some point. And it begins with this passage. This story is based on true events. No. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is a story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. Uh, it presents an account of its narrator's planning failed first attempt which did happen he tried to do that shit to a guy like five days earlier he tried to tase him with one of those like baton tasers and the guy just like ran away but he didn't report it because he like i don't know i think he had something going he was like doing a side thing and he he didn't want to be like yeah i was meeting another woman so he didn't report it back to the story (laughs) yes I mean, is this guy? Never mind. The dumbest person sound, on the planet. He sounds yeah. both. He sounds both very dumb and also very like on the spectrum. If I'm being honest, like I I don't know about that, but I'm gonna keep going. You should. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so it accounts his planning, his failed first attempt, a successful second attempt to lure a man to his garage and murder him with a fake online dating profile used as bait. This is all in the document they pulled off of his laptop. It also goes on to describe dismembering the body. Here's a fun fucking quote. I finally settled on middle-aged single men who lived alone. My reasons were numerous. For one thing, they would be easy to lead by their dicks, easy to manipulate, easy to seduce under my fake female disguise. They were also the most likely targets to have the most expendable money in their bank accounts. Sexist. A tidbit I would like to use my to take advantage of later finally by living alone once they were out of the picture i could easily enter their living spaces undetected with no force entry and remove all sorts of fucking valuable items from the premises this is all in his stupid sk confessions document that he wrote and left on his fucking laptop like an idiot Okay, so this guy seems like he both created like the red pill movement and also uh like d- this was 4 years before Catfish came out. I don't know what the red pill movement is. <gasps> we have to talk. Okay. 
what's like a tiny little shortest way you could say it and uh, five words or less. Uh, All right. So <laughs> during the trial, Twitchell admits to killing Altinger, although authoring or and that he did author the document, but he was like, yo, I was just like making that shit up for fun. Also, the reason I'm admitting to killing Johnny Altinger is because I was acting in self-defense. When he showed up at my house and realized that I wasn't a chick, he came at me, I came at him, and I killed him. This was all self-defense. Fuck y'all. And they're like, I don't know, bro. We've also got this other document called a profile of a psychopath that basically (laughs) says all the same shit. Also, you admit that you've been cheating on your wife. Quote, I still lie to my wife to this day. Every day I get up and get dressed to go into business attire, feed her a line about my appointments for the day, and then leave the house for the day. I set up shop in a coffee shop and work towards producing my film all day long. Then I come home, lie about how it went, and move on with our free time. How uh, how did this guy have money? I don't know, but also, like, maybe his wife was successful. But also, like, he's a terrible writer. I would hate to read his, like, scripts. It sounds god-awful. So... <laughs> Twitchell gets convicted of first degree murder for death of the death of Johnny Altinger. He did also face the potential of an attempted murder charge for his first attack on that one guy. It ends up getting dropped because they're like, we already got him on this other shit. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, So he's in prison in Canada uh, there was a lot of media, Canadian media attention on this, um, especially with the Dexter tie-in. Of course, um, the guy who portrays Dexter, Michael C. Hall, was asked if he knew about the case. And he said, I would hope that people's appreciation was more than some fetishization with the kill scenes. That sucks. That's a shitty thing to ask somebody who's just acting in a thing. Yeah, like like these. Yeah, it's shitty. The best part is that um, Twitchell was still totally obsessed and put in prison while Dexter was still going on. And he like saved up all his prison money to buy a fucking TV so he could get the season finale or the series finale of Dexter. And um, I think it's somewhat commonly thought that the series finale of Dexter was like a huge fucking letdown for everybody. So the fact that um, his hero and it ended shittily makes me happy. But yeah, that's the story of the douchiest douche we know, Matt Twitchell. That guy sucks. Yeah. Why couldn't he just be into Always Sunny in Philadelphia and acted like an asshole? Right? I don't know. Saved some lives. You know, he just really was into the whole everything douchey. You should look up pictures of him. He looks like this, like, biggest (laughs) douchebag. I mean, I will obviously post him when I post about this on our social media, but... 
there's like one of him dressed as Wolverine, of course. Lots of like behind the camera action. You know the guy that was like killing cats and then people on, on YouTube? Yeah. And how he was like really obsessed with movies? Yes. Don't fuck with cats guy, right? Yeah. It's just like, I mean, I used to be really obsessed with movies, but you know, you, some people grow out of it. And some, <laughs> some murder. Don't. Yeah. Um, it's, it's you cool. got to fixate on something if you have no life. God, that guy just sucks. Yeah, he does. Also, his like last he, name is Twitchell. Like, yeah, like even if he didn't kill anybody, like that guy fucking sucks. Yeah, yeah. I, agree. I agree. His name sounds like a, a social media company that didn't make it. Do you remember having a Twitchell account in two thousand two? <laughs> oh my god, yeah, totally. And a live journal. Mm-hmm. Well, the internet's dangerous. <laughs> It's true. Is that what we learned? No. Yours was very ancient, so I don't think like the Neanderthals were using the internet. That's just my opinion, though. Like, I can't speak for them. They invented the internet. They got it from Paimon, the god of the internet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then they taught the Mm -hmm. Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. I wonder if dial-up is. Someone like Paymon did exist and he came, he was like, oh shit, I'm supposed to like teach them how to internet. And he accidentally ended up with the Neanderthals and they were like, oh, we don't even have electricity yet, bro. Oh my God. It's time travel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's probably what that chamber is for. Mm-hmm. The low resonance <gasps> moves you through time. Vibrations are picking up good vibrations. Yeah. Fuck. Did y'all already know that? (laughs) Yep, that's it. (laughs) I'm sorry. Thanks for listening, everybody. (laughs) Tune in next week for more stuff. For part three of Lois (laughs) Duncan. Just kidding. (laughs) On the podcast that we just renamed. Did y'all already know that? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) 